It's so good to see each and every one of you this morning. Thank you for being here, for engaging in the worship. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter number four. John chapter four. It's, um, it's a delight to spend time in God's Word. And we've been working through the Gospel of John, and to this morning is the final in a three-parter on Jesus gives living water, this account with the Samaritan woman at the well. Just before we get into the text, though, as uh, they're being settled out there, I want to invite you, if you're visiting with us, maybe the first or second time you've been with us, if you'd like to, if you don't mind, just grabbing one of those envelopes and uh, jotting down some information about yourself, maybe your name, a phone number, or email address. I won't harass you, I promise. I just want to find out about your visit today and most importantly, see how I might pray for you. We have some out-of-towners come in once in a while and they find us online somehow and, and they'll come in and worship with us just while they're here in Charlotte for a day. Uh, just church family, you know me well enough to know I still follow up with them, check on them, make sure that we can minister to them in any way we can. John chapter 4 this morning. So we've been working through this account with the woman at the well and we've looked at it in three movements. The first movement was the opportunity that presented itself. Jesus is tired at the well of Jacob. We saw how Jesus got to where he was, how the woman got to where she was. What's the background of the text? That last week we talked about the exchange between the two. J Jesus used that natural need that the woman had to point her to a spiritual need that she didn't yet know that she had. That's what he does, right? She had tried to feel this thirst in her soul with so many other things. She had been in relationship after relationship after relationship, marriage after marriage, failed covenant after failed covenant, trying to do things on her own, the relationship she was made to have by God, she was trying to have in other places, she couldn't have on her own until she met the Master. So she encounters Jesus, and uh, she found Him to be who He claimed to be. Today, the third and final movement of this passage we're going to touch on the significance of Jesus' use of that phrase, living water. I can't let that go. We're going to talk about that toward the end of their sermon this morning. We're going to see the fruit of this encounter play out right in front of us, and we're going to notice how it's possible. This is shocking to me, except that I know me, and I've been guilty of this so many times. It's possible to be right in the thick of the action. Right? God at work in your midst, things happening, God is moving, and you be right in the thick of it, focused on one little thing and miss everything that's kind of going on. Am I the only one that's ever been guilty of that? Okay, I see some nods in agreement. Okay, good. Uh, you're in good company this morning. Before we throw the disciples under the bus, we can look in the mirror and kind of track back on some of our own lives, I'm sure. This morning, Jesus um, is there and the woman is left. Let's recap. If you're just joining us, Jesus has encountered this Samaritan woman at the well. He's tired from his journey. He's thirsty, reminding us, John is, that he is truly man and truly God. And, and then this woman comes up. It was culturally taboo for 
a man to speak to a woman in public, for a Jew to speak to um, an unmarried woman in public, for a Jew to speak to a non-Jewish. I mean, it's like all these cultural taboos were at play right here. Jesus breaks them all uh, because he has something else at play. She's shocked that a Jew would speak to her. He proceeds to reveal to her that he is the Messiah. He also confronts her in her sin. She comes clean about the fact that she doesn't really know who God is or how to approach God. She's getting conflicting messages. Jesus says, I am the Messiah, and she comes to understand that he is. So watch this. This thirsty woman was really a troubled woman that became a transformed woman when she encountered Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? John is laying out for us that Christ is God. Here are a few proofs of that as we dive into the text this morning. I want to remind you, God is in control of everything. God is in control of everything. Jacob's well? What a strange coincidence. Jesus, there just at the right moment when this woman happened to walk... What a strange coincidence. God is in control of everything. The second thing, God impacted this woman's life. Jesus is intimate with the Father. He knows exactly what the Father wants, and he told her this. Jesus has insight into the souls of men and women, and Jesus alone had a lasting impact on the Samaritans because of the encounter. John is careful to do that. He nuances his story by help of the Holy Spirit, writing the scripture through John. John's style, John's audience, remember he's contending with, are this group of folks who don't believe Jesus is truly man on one side, and this other group of folks who don't believe Jesus is truly God. I gotta tell you, in my church history uh, class that I'm working through now, the uh, seven ecumenical councils that convened in the early church history. It was all about the same thing. The problem doesn't go away. I've got news for you. Humanity's struggle is not with wars and rumors of wars. It's with them not understanding who Jesus is. Because when you get a picture of who he is, it literally changes everything. Somewhere between verses 24 and 27, this woman totally has her life transformed by the Messiah. This morning, I want to give you three little headers as we navigate this last movement of our text this morning. And here we go, working through it. I think we see very quickly the disciples have some questions. Okay, this, this exchange has just happened. The disciples have questions. They come back and see what's going on. Jeremy, thank you for reading the passage this morning. Um, they're processing what they're seeing. Remember, they're coming down from Sychar. They've gone away to get some food. And they're coming back from the village and they see Jesus, their rabbi, the Messiah. They see Jesus talking to a woman, finishing up a conversation. She drops her water pots and is starting to leave where they are. The text tells us that they had some questions they didn't ask. Did you see that? In the text, I don't have it on the screen, but just look briefly at verses 27. It says, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, uh, what do you seek to the woman? Like they wanted to ask her some questions, but they didn't. Um, and then it goes on, it says, why are you talking with her? They wanted to ask Jesus a question. They had questions for both of them. They wanted to know what, they, what she was doing, what he was doing. 
Now, you know, tone is everything. Tone is absolutely everything. And, and where, the way that we say words matters. Even punctuation matters, doesn't it? I read this week of a story of a, a wife. This is back in the day before texting and stuff. She, she was on a cruise and the husband was back in the mainland. And she telegraphed back to her husband and she says, Found an, a necklace. Um, very expensive. She gave the price of it. She says, would really like to buy it. The husband went back to the telegrapher and said, send the message back. No, comma, costs too much. What got transmitted was, no cost is too much. So she bought it. The way we say things matter. So I wondered if the disciples were going, why are you talking to her? Or did they go, why are you talking to her? Or did they go, why are you talking to her? Right? Doesn't matter. These were on their mind. It's funny what comes out of their mouth first. Why was that on their mind? I touched on the taboo a little bit, but you need to know that the rabbis of the day had added quite a bit to Scripture. Now, I want you to hear this was commonly accepted this little doozy from a rabbi who said, A man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even with his sister or his daughter, on account of what um, men might say. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even his own wife. Imagine that walk home. Uh, and especially not with another woman on account of what men might say. Another gem from that day went like this. He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at last will inherit Gehenna. They had some strong opinions that didn't really come from God. Now this is not what's known as the Billy Graham rule. There's wisdom in that that goes something like this. I mean, if they would have written that first rule, something like uh, a man shall not be alone with a woman other than his wife. I think we might see a little wisdom in that. Yes? Like, uh, don't go to the inn with another woman who's not your wife. Why is that? Because the enemy loves to attack. And if he can poke holes in credibility, he will. And if you can live your life in such a way that you're above reproach and don't have to answer silly questions, it, there's some wisdom in that based on your station or your occupation in life. I get that. That's not what this is. They went beyond what God said and way beyond what was reasonable in wisdom. And this still, the disciples are still shaking loose some of this baggage. The woman engages them as she leaves because right as she leaves her water jar, she's going with her into town and she says to anybody that'll listen, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? I'll come back to that. In just a moment when we deal with what the woman does. But in verse 31, let's look at what the disciples do say. So they didn't ask questions about the exchange. They said, uh, Rabbi, eat. You need to eat something. Now, I can only picture my grandmother, uh, who every trip to her house, you could just have left a restaurant and stopped by on the way home. And she's like, well, you've got to eat something. Like you, it's like you can't leave without eating something. We were talking earlier. My grandmother, uh, one grandmother, always had a pound cake. I don't know how. I hope it wasn't the same pound cake. <laughs> but she always had a pound cake on the, the dining room table. And like if you didn't leave, you could cut a slice that you could see light through. 
And you'd be like, this is all I want. She'd say, good. And she'd pour about a half gallon of milk, put it right beside you and say, now drink that to go with it. Eat. You need to eat something. They're not wrong to do this. They're not unspiritual for asking him to eat. He doesn't rebuke them for this. He does give them insight into something else going on. But remember, he came to the well tired. He had to deal with the disciples, probably incessant questions and crowds pressing him on the way to the well. He didn't uh, take them up on this offer to eat initially. Nothing wrong with their request, but there's something else going on. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 32. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, the storyteller in me is trying to imagine where his eyes are in this moment. Is he looking down the road, waiting on the Samaritans to come up the road? Because he knows they're coming. Is he trying to watch the dust trail of the woman walk off where he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about? Is he looking up to his father with this look that we have pulling away from the Thanksgiving table, right? Loosening his proverbial belt saying, man, I've, I've got food to eat that you don't even know about. The disciples living in the moment, of course, basically say, who brought him something to eat? I thought that was what we were doing. Where did he get food from? And then Jesus brings the lesson, right? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Have you ever been so wrapped up in something you forgot to eat? Now, at some point in my life, that's not been the case. When I was a teenager, I've been so wrapped up in eating, I forgot to do other things. Can anybody relate, right? But uh, there are times in life when you can be so wrapped up in something, so sometimes it's stress. Let's go there, right? You've got a deadline that's looming, and you're like, I don't have time. I've got to get this thing done. Other times, you're so in the moment that everything else seems to fade. Now, Jesus didn't lose control of his faculties or get distracted here, but he was so satisfied with what was going on, everything else began to fade. He knew what was coming up the road in just a bit. His focus, his priority in this moment is on what's happening in the heavenlies, not what's just going on on earth. Remember the woman. I mean, think about this exchange. She's at the well getting a natural need met. Jesus points her to a spiritual need. The disciples come up. Jesus is still relishing this wonderful moment that's happened in the spiritual. And they're like, let's come back down to earth. And he's like, I'm not coming back to earth yet. I'm still satisfied with what's going on. He had higher priorities. Now, this text is not implying that those of us who are super spiritual never eat food. Um, nor is he rebuking the disciples for suggesting that they eat. Remember, we're not angels. We have to eat and we have to sleep. I do think that Jesus is saying that there are moments in our walk with God and in our passion for God's glory, and in our accomplishing the work of God as the Holy Spirit works through us, there are moments when we can look at everything else around us, everything the world has to offer and say, I'm good, I'm good, I don't need anything. I'm, we, we like to say, I'm in the zone right now, right? I'm good, I, I've got everything I need, this is awesome. I am satisfied right now with the will of the one who sent me. Do you know the name William Wilberforce? An abolitionist who was this mighty man of valor. A mighty man of valor that God used in incredible ways. 
William Wilberforce, though, when you read him, I don't know what voice you hear when you read his writings. When you read his writings, I, I hear like, and I'm going to date myself. I do that often. I mess with a lot of you because you don't know how old I am. I'd say really old preachers and stuff. But Adrian Rogers and that thundering, and that thundering boom, even better than Jeremy's. I mean, can you imagine? Like that thundering, booming voice. And you think about William Wilberforce when he writes and you read, you just imagine this giant of a man. But it's recorded that those history tells us that he was so sickly in his appearance and so frail that as he would step up to speak and address the House of Commons, the members would smile in pity and amusement at what a tiny and frail man this was. But when he began to speak, the people soon realized there was a fire burning inside of him. This little minnow, those parliamentarians would write, became a whale right in front of our eyes. Why is that? Because he had food and sustenance and strength that you couldn't see. Yes. Historians say that John Knox, the great Scottish preacher, was so feeble as an old man when he preached, he needed help to the pulpit and he balanced himself on the pulpit to stay erect while he was preaching. It said that as he began to speak, his voice was first so weak the congregation would lean in but as he began to speak and read God's word and expound upon God's word, his voice would gain in volume. It would have the power of a trumpet call and some fear that he was likely in their vernacular to ding the pulpit into blads. Who talks like that? It means splinter the pulpit and to bust right through it while he was preaching. Why is that? Because he was completely filled with the divine power of God and experienced supernatural sustenance that others couldn't see. Sometimes you can be in the moment doing the will and the work of God and everything else around you fade. That's where Jesus was in this moment. The disciples were likely ready to get on their way to Jerusalem and get to the big dance and accomplish big time ministry. They wanted to see Jesus honor. They wanted to see Jesus reverence. They wanted everybody, the big crowds, they wanted his platform to expand and to hear his teaching. And Jesus said, remember back in John 4, no, 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 we've got to go through Samaria because there's a work there for us to do. He didn't go to Jerusalem to grab the mic and announce he was the Messiah publicly. He went to the outcasts and the vulnerable and the voiceless and the marginalized, just like the shepherds were among the first to greet him on the hillside, to get the message from the angels and to make their way to that manger, just like those outcasts in society on the wayside were the ones that Jesus was drawn to in ministry. Jesus goes to the ones the Jews would likely ignore to say, I am the promised one. Are you tired right now? Maybe you feel like life has dealt you a detour. No, no doubt, you, you feel like you, you have a plan, you're working a plan, and, and you want to see that plan accomplished. And, and yet, you're out of steam, you're out of energy, and, or, or, or maybe you've been sidelined or sidetracked. You might be at a Jacob's well moment. It could be that you need to stop and catch your breath. That's fine. God will sustain you. He sent the ravens to sustain one of his prophets. He can send anybody by to give you what you need. But while you're there, 
getting your strength renewed. It could be that God has allowed you to get to that place because in His sovereign will and divine plan for somebody else, they need to discover that He is the Savior of the world. We don't live our lives unto ourselves. The goal of the Christian home is not just to have the most awesome marriage on the block. The goal of the Christian young man or young woman is not just to live their life so pure that others marvel at their purity. The goal of our lives is to take any holiness and measure of that that God gives us to live for His glory to point to the one who saves. Our marriage ought to be a gospel track. For those outside the faith, as they see husbands who love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave themselves for it. Our homes, whether we're single or whether we're large families, ought to sing for the glory of God. Not that we're perfect and float around on clouds and sing the hallelujah chorus all the time. But there ought to be the aroma of Christ, whether we're sidetracked or in the zone. Jesus is Lord. God may have orchestrated what you think is a detour as the divine appointment for somebody else to discover that he is their thirst quencher. Remember, God is the Lord of the harvest. I'm thankful to Peter Lang for pulling together this great little summary. God's the one that determines the time of the harvest. God is the one who appoints the laborers for the harvest. God is the one who guards the success of the harvest. And God is the one who deserves the praise for the harvest. In a grander sense, it reminds me that we need each other. The church works best when the church works together. Some of you will sow the gospel in conversations you'll have this week. And you'll want to see that person trust Jesus, but they may not in that moment. Somebody else that you don't know may come by and water that seed with another conversation. And then that individual might find themselves at a church service. Oh, I don't know, maybe at the intersection of East Boulevard and South Boulevard in Charlotte, North Carolina. And here a guy behind a pulpit that's got gray hair like an old man that looks like a little kid up there. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> And they may hear the gospel clearly presented and articulated that Christ is the only one that satisfies. And not because he's come to make life better for you or to give you an upgrade, but because you are a sinner deserving of the wrath of God. But Jesus Christ stood between the wrath of God and your eternal soul when he hung, bled, and died on Calvary's cross, bearing your sin and shame and your rebellious heart toward God. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, raised to life on the third day, and those arms are outstretched still, not on a cross, seated on the throne. He's extending the invitation for you to come, repent of your sins, and trust Him as Savior. Now somebody that responds to that first time, come on, that's, that's, that's craziness. But that's how God works. But I may be sowing today, and you water, and you reap tomorrow. We don't know. God's in charge. But we're stewards, ambassadors of hope. It also works with encouragement. It's hard to do the one anothering in Scripture without the one another. We need each other. 
to do God's work God's way. The disciples had a lot of questions. Jesus called them in, taught them about the law of the harvest. He said, look, there's a harvest coming in just a minute. It's different than what the other work you're doing, but I'm going to need you to be workers in the harvest in a moment. And they're looking around going, what is, who gave him food, right? Now they might be missing it a little bit. The disciples had questions, but the woman got some answers that she had been looking for. In verses 28 and 29, will you look with me at just a moment in the text? Verses 28 and 29, so the woman left her water jar, I commented on this earlier, and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Well, there's not a lot of exegesis to pull out of that. It's pretty simple. She didn't really have all of her theological I's dotted or T's crossed. She had not attended the Christian Life and Witness course or his presence in crisis and how to share uh, God in a time of need. She didn't really have good evangelism training. All she knew is that she was lost. She had encountered the Savior and now she was found and she wanted to point people to Jesus. I want to highlight a few things that we see right here in the text that stare at us quite directly. She leaves everything with reckless abandon. I'm wondering how she got water for the evening. Am I the only one that's thinking about that? Like, you know she still had to cook and bathe and all the things. I'm like, I wonder if she got home, told the hundredth person about Jesus. She's like, oh yeah, my water. I got to get back up there, right? Or is that just us when we walk around life? She did like the old Southern Gospel song said. She went into town and said, I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. Yeah, that's how it works. Her testimony, though, was Jesus Christ. I want you to notice, I want you to look back at the word she said. Look at it in your Bible. She said, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Many of us tell our testimonies like this. Let me tell you all I ever did. And then squeeze Jesus in there and hope it impacts your life, right? That's not what a testimony is. In fact, John Stott tells us a testimony is not a synonym for an autobiography. We are not talking about ourselves, but about Jesus Christ. Here's the thing we know about this woman. Everybody in town, shocker, pre-Facebook, pre-what's the neighborhood app where everybody tells everything that's on the neighborhood app, like, come on with the dogs. I mean, I got it. We all love dogs, but your dog, if it's lost for the 14th time this week, get a new dog. Um, and the fireworks. I'm on the neighborhood app, July the 4th, right? They act like we're under a terrorist attack. When the 4th of July, like, my dog has disability. And you go, I'm sorry. We're going to set off some firecrackers. Anyway. She didn't have all this, but everybody in town knew all of her business. They already knew her story. They all knew all of her story. She had to come to the well by herself because nobody wanted to be seen with her. She didn't have to go back into town and tell her story. She went back into town and told them about Jesus, the main attraction of her life. She didn't begin with the law and the prophets and expound all the way that pointed to Jesus. Jesus did that on the way, uh, on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. She didn't get too technical. It's not an excuse for poor preparation. Don't hear me say that. She just ran into the village and told them about Jesus, that he knew all about her, that he still loved her, that he reached out to her. She didn't reach out to him. He reached out to her, but he changed her and he could change them too. I tell you, 
Sometimes I think we're hesitant to share the good news of the gospel with people because we're afraid we don't have it all perfectly figured out. We were afraid I, I might say something wrong. You probably will. I do. I'm a pastor. I don't get it right all the time. I mean, I get the main things right. Don't, don't like take my credentials. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like I get it right. But there's sometimes you get thrown a stump and you go like, ah, that's a great question. Uh, let me call Flip. No, uh, he, he's dealt with all of it. But, uh, you, but don't let perfection be the enemy of execution. Don't say, well, I can't share it until it's perfect. You don't do that in any other area of your life. I mean, if you've got clean water to drink and everybody around you is drinking sewage water, how, how, what kind of thought process goes through your mind and like, well, I, I, you know, I'm not sure exactly how to pour this out. I know they want it. I know they need it. And if they tasted it, they'd never go back to drinking their old thing. But I, I'm just not sure. I mean, is this the right kind of bottle? And uh, Do they really have the right container? Pass the thing around so they stop drinking sewage. That's what the world's doing. They're consuming the filth that the enemy has peddled out. They don't know what truth is. They don't know who Jesus is. And we've got clean, pure, living water. Just share it. They're thirsty. They don't know they're thirsty. They need to meet the thirst quencher. Jesus tells the disciples what's really going on. And then we see him prepping them for the next moment. The final part of our text, verses 39 through 42, we see the stream begin. The stream starts to show up. This exchange between Jesus and the Samaritan woman reminds each of us that eternal life isn't just about our life in heaven when we die. Jesus began the conversation with talking about living water. I used that thread through the whole three message set. The Christian life is about eternity with Jesus. We too get to rule and reign with Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, and the lover of our souls. Hallelujah. But the Christian life is also about the life of heaven welling up inside of us when we live here on earth. So is that a feeling? Is that a state of mind? Is that an emotional trip for us? Let's see what the Bible has to say about it. In Jeremiah 2.13, the stream begins to start. God says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Who, quiz time, Q&A, I want some response. Who is the fountain of living water? The Lord is. Jesus, God. I mean, all those are right answers, right? The Lord is. The Lord says, my people have committed to, they've forsaken me. They've gone somewhere else to quench their thirst. And then, not only did they go to a bad source, but they put it in something that can't even hold water. When we try to do this on our own, in our self-made containers, it doesn't work. It certainly doesn't satisfy. In Zechariah 14.8, 14, rather, God promises that the living waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. I don't have time to dive deep into that text. We're, we're landing this plane now, but can I just tell you from context, we didn't get half of a blessing and somebody else get the other half. We all got all the blessing, but there was enough to cover the whole world. 
When, when, the, when they write about east to west, it's that picture of there's no stopping and starting. It's like that wedding band imagery that we use in weddings, no beginning, no end. It's that picture that he is this living water that will flow everywhere from Jerusalem. Literally, this phrase refers to fresh water, fresh spring water, but Jesus identifies the living water. It's a spoiler alert for John chapter number 7. Look at what the Bible says in verse 38 through 39. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of, can you say it with me? Living water. And then John gives us insight. Tells us what it's about. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. This is more than a feeling. It's more than a state of mind. It's more than an emotion. This is God himself working in us so that he can work through us and get all the glory. If you saw the movie Jesus Revolution, the tragedy of Lonnie Frisbee's story is that he was so obsessed with God working through him, he neglected God working in him. We can get so obsessed with stuff happening around us. God, if we're not careful, can become a means to an end for us. If you allow God to simply become a means to an end, just a, a shot at a better life, just a ticket out of hell and into heaven, just a way to avoid suffering, number one, I think you might be looking at another God. But let's say you're not. You've just traded down your Christian experience. I want to tell you, you're going to miss the greatest reward of the Christian life. You know what the greatest reward of the Christian life is? It's not healthy kids. It's not a healthy marriage. It's not um, having everything made in the shade. It's not health, wealth, prosperity. You know what the greatest reward of the Christian life is? Jesus Christ. A living relationship with this God who gives us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. And watch this. And still blesses us with all kinds of amazing experiences. God is so good. Grace upon grace. God is that well of living water. God gives it to us. He gives it to the church today. We're on this side of Jesus being glorified. We have the Holy Spirit. I've got a river of life inside of me. It's the Holy Spirit flowing out to bless those around me. Such grace. Jesus invited this ethnicity of people who were outcasts to see him as Messiah, to drink from the water of life, to have the promise of the Holy Spirit before he even taught the Jewish people about it. That's grace. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Now, if we zoom back on our account rather quickly this morning, we see Jesus has prepped the disciples for this moment. The woman's already gone into the city. She's testified about the power of God. And now some of the Samaritans believe because of the woman. Well, let's just look at the text as it finishes. Now a stream comes toward Jesus in verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This little town of Sychar is talking about Jesus 
being the Savior of the world. It's the first time this phrase is used to describe the Messiah. And it's used by Samaritans who just happen to be in an earshot of a woman who happened to be at the well at the right time who happened to be there when Jesus happened to be worn out on what looked like a sidetrack to getting to the big dance. Hear me, church family. Could it be that the grand God in heaven, weaving us into his grand story, wants to remind us in our suffering, in our resting, even if we're on mission, killed it. That it's all about Jesus. That the world might know that he's come to seek and to save that which was lost. As Julia comes to the instruments this morning, I want to just tell you, as much as we like to parse hairs about this unnamed Samaritan woman, as much as we like to dive deep into the nuances of the exchange and exploring all the facets here, if, if our Bible study causes us to take our eyes off of Jesus, we might be doing it wrong. He promised her the living water. He confronted her in her sin. He revealed himself as the promise-keeping, sin-smashing Messiah. She trusted him. She ran and told everyone everything she knew how to say. She trusted him, uh, rather some trusted him based on her word alone. Others came and trusted him based on his word alone. The disciples saw the great commission play out in front of them before it was spoken out by the Messiah. The Samaritans weren't top of mind to them, but Jesus was. Jesus was the hero of her story. Jesus was the main attraction of her life, not her past. Everybody knew that. Is Jesus the hero of your story today? Is he the main attraction of your life today? Well, that's how he created you to live. And if you're not living that way, you can. Repent. Trust Jesus. Let's pray. we recognize that we live in a world that is parched with thirst, a dry and barren land. And you alone have the living water that satisfies in the here and now and in the not yet. Lord, you are satisfaction for us when we are misunderstood and satisfaction for us when um, 
things seem to be working differently than we thought they would. Your satisfaction for us when we find ourselves worn out and maybe even on the sidelines. You are enough. And, and, and it could be, Lord. We want to we just surrender to your will this morning and say we're open for whatever you would bring our way at any stage of life. We want you to be the hero of our stories. We want you to be the main attraction of our lives, God. Help us to live in a surrendered way, living in touch with that living life. Oh, how we love you, Lord. And Father, I take this moment too just to pray for those suffering not too far from our location. As uh, storms have ravaged part of the southeast, I'm mindful this morning that at least two organizations take the lead in responding and providing help in Jesus' name. Samaritan's Purse has boots on the ground already and the storm was Friday night. No doubt the Billigram Rapid Response Team will be there to help bring hope in a time of crisis. And Lord, so we just commit those who are mobilizing, leaving the comfort of their own families to go and help others who are devastated in Jesus' name. That's not the only suffering in our nation right now, but it's, it is recent and fresh for us. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd go with our brothers and sisters and infuse hope, help them to be sources of that water, springs of that living water, and for others to taste and see that you are good. In Jesus' name, let the church say amen.